All right, welcome back to STEM Fatal, your women in science history podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I am your other ho-host, ho- what I almost said. <laughs> I'm your, your ho-host. Your co-host. <laughs> uh, I'm your other co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma. <laughs> Oh, wow. All of a sudden, I feel we've been talking for 30 minutes ahead of the pod, Emlyn. And all of a sudden, I feel like I can't say words now that we started (laughs) recording. (laughs) It always happens. Like, all right, wait, how do I interact with a human now that it's recording? Yeah. Um, So I'm your hocus, director, (laughs) emmer, lammer. What are (laughs) words? Go totally off the rails oh man well uh, that would just be fitting in tune (laughs) with life right now being off the rails (laughs) totally off the rails yeah Yeah. sounds about right but we're gonna stay on the rails today and yeah we gotta we gotta for everybody's sake yeah bring a little bit of order to this chaos and (laughs) a little bit of knowledge What kind of knowledge? Um, So this week, this past week, I guess this episode's coming out on Monday. So last week was uh, Black Botanist Week, which was celebrating Black botanists, past and present, um, kind of similar to Black Birders Week, (coughs) just... Showing the diversity of people who study botany and that it's of interest to a lot of different people, um, not just white people, mm-hmm. which we might automatically think of as like botanists and garden- <laughs> gardeners. Yeah. Um, and so on Twitter, there was a lot of people were posting just pictures of themselves doing botany, showing kind of a diversity of people doing um, working with plants. And then uh, a couple times I saw under the hashtag Black Botanical Legend this lady that people were talking about. And so I was like, I I must cover her. We must talk. Yay. Oh, my gosh. Cool. And so today we're going to be talking about the Black Botanical um, legacy and legend, I'm going to say, Marie (laughs) Clark Taylor. Cool. I'm excited. All right. So this is going to be a bit of a shorter episode because there's just not that much documented about her. So there's going to be a lot of gaps. Uh, I tried to fill in where I could, giving at least context when we didn't have a lot of information about Mm -hmm. her specific life. But this is going to be a shorter episode. And that's just the way it is because um, we don't document things well sometimes, especially for people who weren't necessarily very famous at their time. Yeah, it's pretty hard. I think like we've both come up against this a number of times. Yes. You hear about a cool woman and there's just not that much information about her life. You know, there's information about maybe a couple of her discoveries, mm-hmm. but um, biographical info is, is lacking for a lot of people out there. So 
I don't know. Everyone should just keep a diary, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then um, like scan it onto the internet, please. Yeah. Before you die. Yeah, publish it on the internet somewhere. <laughs> For all to just see. write a short timeline of your life, then publish it on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Yeah, especially like people who um, before the internet was a big thing, like there's just not much information about their like personal right. life or a lot of people's discoveries aren't actually available on the internet. Like, um, mm Mary Taylor will we'll talk about it, but like I tried to find her dissertation and it's not on the internet. So like I would have had yeah, to. Yeah, it's all paper. It's all paper somewhere, hopefully still exists, <laughs> but yeah, who knows? All right. So let's, let's get into it and learn what we can learn. Yay. All right. So Mary Clark Taylor, that is her, um, married name i don't know what her maiden name is i could not find that oh wow interesting okay so mary something was born in sharpsburg <laughs> pennsylvania uh, on february 16th 1911 and you know maybe if i had very good detective skills i could look for births in sharpsburg pennsylvania on that day, but yeah, that's but, not going to happen. I mean, we're not... I'm sure you could find it, but we're not investigative reporters, no. and we're not paid to do this, no. so there's just not quite the time. There's not. It's okay, Emlyn. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Um, so, kind of similarly, there's really nothing known about her childhood, but we do know wow. that she went to Dunbar High School in Washington, D.C. So at some point, her and her family moved to D.C. Um, and she okay. went to Dunbar High okay. School and graduated in 1929. And then she went on to wow. Howard University to receive her uh, B.S. in 1933 and her uh, M.S., her master's degree in botany in 1935. Wow. Yeah, and she must have been, like, one of the first female graduate students at Howard. Yeah, I don't know when Howard was founded. Yeah, uh, so Howard University, like, uh, is ranked as the top producer of African-American undergraduates who go on to earn science and engineering right. doctoral degrees, so... Um, mm -hmm. Howard's like a historically black college and a lot of a lot of the women that we've talked about have at some point been at Howard or worked at Howard University. Right. Um, but I don't know when they themselves started having master's and PhD students. So I don't really know where she falls in in terms of like the firsts for Howard. Okay. Wow, Howard was founded in 1867. Nice. I did not know that. Yeah. That's cool. It's yeah, old. I didn't look up when they started graduate programs, mm -hmm. but I was curious um, when they were founded. Yeah. Okay. So, so she... Carry on. Yeah, thanks. She got her master's in botany. Like, what I would really love to know, which is one of those things that's really hard to find, is like, how did she get into botany? You know, I think knowing more about right. her childhood would be really interesting to understand, like, what sparked her curiosity in botany, um, what led her mm -hmm. to kind of that career. But that's that's an unknown. 
So we can we can speculate. You know, let's but. just assume uh I'm just gonna assume she like saw plants. And was like, <laughs> these are freaking cool. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's hard not to think plants are cool, right? Plants, like yeah. flowers, vegetables, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh aquatic plants. Ooh. I don't know. There's all kinds There's of all plants. Kinds. <laughs> they're so pretty, they're diverse. Well, Mm-hmm. So, after she received her master's degree in botany from Howard, she taught science at Cardozo Senior High School in Washington, D.C. in the late 1930s and the early 1940s. Mm. And it was segregated, and it was one of only three schools for black children in Washington, D.C. And that seems wow. like not very many, considering how dense Washington, D.C. was. But I couldn't find any yeah. like, equivalent of how many, you know, white-only schools there were. So not really sure. Right. This was during the phase of, quote, separate but equal. Yeah. So while she was teaching, she enrolled in in a doctoral study program at Fordham University in New York City. Oh, okay. How she did this, I don't really know, because it seems somehow difficult to be a high school teacher in Washington, D.C. and a Ph.D. student in New York City. (laughs) But alas, it happened. I'm sure if we had more, like, specific details, it would make more sense. But, yeah, it seems it seems like she has some type of time turner or <laughs> yeah. she, some other, you know... Yeah, some Hermione device. magic. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But nevertheless, so while she's teaching, she's also getting her PhD. Um, um, and in 1941, she got her PhD from Fordham University in botany. And this made her the first woman of any race to receive a science PhD from Fordham in any discipline. And also the first African-American woman to receive a PhD in botany. Wow. Pretty incredible. I know. I know. I want to know more about her, like, struggles and intrigue. But alas, we've we've got this bare bones information, but I will Mm -hmm. take it. So, although I could not find her dissertation, her dissertation was called, quote, The Influence of Definite Photoperiods Upon the Growth and Development of Initiated Floral Primordia. <laughs> Whoa. What is floral primordia? So, I'm going to break, try to break. <laughs> okay. I'm going to try to break down what this means uh-huh. and, and um, interpret what her dissertation was about based on yeah, the Yeah, okay, cool. So I deduce <laughs> that she studied the influence of light duration, uh-huh. so pho- photo periods, how long, um, you know, the days right. were, so how long the light duration yeah. was, and how that influenced plant growth, uh-huh. specifically in terms of how it influenced the development of the earliest stages of a flower, oh, which were called the that's primordia. That's the flower primordia. Okay. I was wondering, I was yes. just was thinking primordial ooze. It sounds yeah. so. Mm-hmm, yeah. What is the word primordial? So this mean? is <laughs> primordial, like before death? Like first. First something. Okay. 
primordial. Yeah, so like the primordial ooze is like the first right life ooze, right? And then primordia, like floral primordia, are like the first cells that are producing a flower. So like the very early yeah, stages. Yeah, okay, cool. This has been linguistics. Uh, okay. So uh, this is roughly maybe what her dissertation was about. Okay. So the the effect of day length on early development of flowers. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Okay. That's, it, you know, why not? Why not just call it that? Yeah, exactly. You know, why, we don't need all have... these fancy terms. Science, yet again, coming up with new terms. <laughs> Just kidding. They're specific. <laughs> yeah, they're good. But it's they are confusing mm-hmm. if you're not in the, the know-how. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, once she has her PhD, World War II, World, our favorite war, World War II, <laughs> broke out. <laughs> I won't call it our favorite <laughs> Our favorite war. It's just like, there. yeah, it's just, uh, this was a science, you know, we've talked about before, science revolution, women in science, you know. <sighs> we cover a lot of World War II. This is like part women in science podcast, part World War II podcast. <laughs> From how often World War II is like a featured time period. I know. Okay. Yeah, that's funny. But that's okay. Okay, so World War II breaks out, and Mary, or Marie, um, goes and serves in the American Red Cross in New Guinea. Oh my gosh. I know. (laughs) She's just like, I'm going. random, yeah. I didn't even know New Guinea was part of World War II. Yeah. Is it... So let me tell you about it. See, this is... Oh, okay. I was going to say, great. A new... (laughs) Another way in which my history knowledge is completely lacking, but I'm glad, yeah. so I'm glad uh, you're going to fill in the info. Yeah, just a little, just a little nubbin <laughs> of information. Nice. So, in early 1942, once World War II broke out, the Empire of Japan invaded what we now call Papua New Guinea. Oh, um, okay. But it was composed at the time of area controlled by Australia as well as area controlled by the Netherlands. So a part of Papua New Guinea at the time was a Dutch colony. Mm -hmm. So from late 1942 to the Japanese surrender, Allied forces, mostly composed of Australian and U.S. forces, fought the Japanese back from um, Papua, Papua, uh, which was controlled by Australia, and as well as kind of fighting the Japanese back from the Dutch colony, which was Western New Guinea. Right, right. Okay. Wow. And according to John Laffin, who is a Australian historian of the time, he says, quote, the campaign was arguably the most arduous fought by any allied forces during World War II. Whoa. So, Interesting. Over yeah, this so- island. Yeah. Over this island. And I think part of it is, from my understanding, the way that they kind of won against the Japanese was they just blockaded them and prevented them from getting food. And so, like, 95% of the Japanese soldiers that died during this, like, 
attack were due to disease and starvation. Oh my gosh. Not War actually. Is so atrocious. <laughs> it's so awful. And so she was in the thick that. of it, helping the Red Cross. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I don't know what her role was, but I'm guessing some like nurse or aid in some kind yeah. of medical capacity. But I'm not positive about right. that. Right. Yeah. But while she was in New Guinea, she met Richard Taylor. Is, uh, is there like a connection between them, or I mean, uh, no, well, her 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 married name is, last name is Taylor. Yeah, yeah, I was joking. Oh, like, okay. I got. It. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she met Richard Taylor while in New Guinea, uh, and he was serving in the All Black Ninety Third Airborne Infantry Division, mm, and okay. they began to date. I'm guessing probably after New Guinea. I don't know if they started dating in New Guinea. I'm not sure there's a lot of dating going on during war. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he's like, oh, can I get your number for, you know, when we're back home? Like, yeah, this if is all and over. When we're back home. <laughs> mm. I mean, maybe they started chatting, you know. Chatting. That, that, that yes. could be dating, going for walks. A, a, a wartime romance? Know. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta. (laughs) It's one of the many thousands of fucked up things is that we have segregated. Like, you're good enough to die for our country, but we're not going to give you equal rights or have you in our normal army. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just awful. Yeah. And then when you come back, Mm -hmm. you aren't still aren't going to be treated fairly or equally. (laughs) Yep, Even though exactly. you risk your life for our country and freedoms. Yes. <sighs> All right. So after the war was over, Marie returned to Washington, D.C. and was hired as an assistant professor at Howard University. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. So her work focused... Was she... Well, I went, just was wondering if she ever, like... What if she was doing research some t- at some point between those periods of time, or like while she was in Papua New Guinea, or that's just yeah. I, I wish we knew more. As usual. I know, I know. Anyway, yeah, great plants in Papua New Guinea. I'm not sure she got to enjoy them, but who knows? Yeah, but yeah. So when she returned and she started an assistant professorship, she focused on plant photomorphogenesis. Which, in other words, wow. is how plant development is mediated and influenced by light. So kind of right. continuing on okay. with her interests from her dissertation. Mm-hmm. She then became the chair of the botany department in 1947. Wow. And made, stayed as on as the chair of the botany department until her retirement in 1976. While she, once she got back from the war on January 1st, 1948, she married Richard Taylor and then gave birth to their son the same year. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That's just fast. Yeah, that's a fast. Get post-war? I mean, that's the ba- it's uh, baby boomer time, right? Th- this kind of makes me think they were dating a little bit in Papa New Guinea. <laughs> well, okay, so if they got no. married on January 1st, they have 12 months I know, Do- I'm not saying that they, like, date a date. I'm just saying they, like... Oh, 
I hope, you know, they were, they got to know each other, hopefully. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I mean, there was, uh, what, ni- they got married in 1948, the war was over in 1945. 1945, yeah. So they had three oh, years see. after so the war. So it wasn't right upon they returned. Okay. No, okay. no. Yeah, three years gotcha. into being back, they got married, and then within that year. Yeah, cool. cool they cool. had a son. Okay, okay. So- I read this and I don't, maybe you can understand what this joke is. So Marie <laughs> reportedly enjoyed, there was this campus joke while she was, once she had given birth, that was, quote, because of her professional dedication or prof- professorial dedication, she had deliberately planned her child's delivery after final exams. So I guess this was a funny joke. <laughs> I guess she gave birth right after final exams. Yeah. And people she thought had she had planned, planned it. it. Right. It's just, uh, I mean, everyone some people like, do oh, plan it that way. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, some people, it's makes things easier if you plan yeah. it, you know, a summer, a summer babe. Uh huh. Checks out. But I mean, mm-hmm. I just can't tell if it's a joke or if it's, <laughs> I know. Just yeah, what I was like, I. Uh, <laughs> It's not that funny, but, you know, uh, whatever. Yeah. All right. That's funny. So during her tenure uh, at Howard, she was instrumental in the growth of the department. She aided in the design and construction of the new biology building, as well as the wow. botanical greenhouse laboratory, which was on the rooftop of Ernest Just Hall biology building. <gasps> I remember that name. Yes. So if you recall, Ernest Just was the advisor of Roger R. Liner Young, who was the first African-American woman to receive a PhD in zoology and to publish in science. Yeah. And he was kind of a... He was kind of Yeah, there was some questionable... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Some questionable interactions between them, and he was kind of an asshole to her, it seems. Yeah. Throughout her career, starting with her time at Cardozo High School and then continuing while she was a professor at Howard, uh, Marie organized a series of summer science institutes for high school teachers, where she introduced new methods for teaching science. And so this is one of her really big contributions. She she encouraged teachers to include light microscopes uh, in their classrooms so that Students could see and study cells and learn processes such as mitosis, meiosis, cell division, cell replication, all of that stuff in, Mm -hmm. like, they could actually see it with their eyes while they were learning it. That's so cool. Yeah. And she also urged teachers to use real botanical materials in their classrooms as they were relatively cheap to acquire and they allowed students to observe various biological processes firsthand, such as light-induced uh, seed germination, heredit- heredity, and gas exchange. Additionally, cool. she argued that no other source material could duplicate the ease of plants to demonstrate these processes, which is true. Plants are super e- mm-hmm. Some plants are very easy to keep alive. Um, yeah. And you can do a bunch of different experiments with them, and you don't need eye cook. And, yeah, it's all <laughs> relatively cheap and easy. Yeah, definitely. And at this time, 80 to 85% of high school biology teachers were unaware uh, of how plant materials could be used for teaching biology and weren't using any type of plant materials. So she, wow. the most 
most teachers like didn't even really think about plants when they were teaching biology in terms of like actually bringing plants into the classroom or plant materials. Yeah, that's really crazy because I feel like that's so like commonplace and standard mm-hmm. now. Wow. Uh, I found in the Plant Science Bulletin of the Botanical Society of America, like one of its really past issues, they had there was a table of instructional films for botany that had been prepared by Taylor. So that was just a fun thing. It was like, you know, pages and pages of all of these resources for teachers um, of like various different plant films to teach various different topics. Um, And so these videos she collated focused on like plant life cycles, physiology, heredity, uh, bacteriology, and conservation. And so she really was emphasizing how much information you can teach students by using plants to kind of display the things that they're learning in their textbooks or whatnot. That's awesome. So a lot of this work that she was doing was funded by multiple grants from the National Science Foundation, which allowed her to grow and develop these summer institutes throughout the 50s and the 60s. Dang. And I wonder, because schools were still segregated, was she only teaching, like, black high school teachers? Was she teaching black and white high school teachers? I just, I'm, I'm interested in, like, how the government's funding her to teach all of these high school teachers, um, but, like, how that actually manifests in this, like, racially segregated school system. Yeah, I'd be curious. Yeah, I would... I mean, I doubt it would be she's only allowed to teach certain types of teacher, certain, like, Mm -hmm. races of teachers. I don't think there would be a mandate against, like who she could hold these workshops for, but I wouldn't, mm-hmm. I don't know who would attend them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's um, fair. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not actually sure, but that's a good question. So while she was doing this, she became very, very successful. And I think her, these summer institutes were, you know, very well funded by NSF and Mm -hmm. she was, I think, having more and more of these institutes. So she was um, introducing these like methods and ideas to a larger swath of American high school teachers as the time went on. And so in the mid 1960s, she was personally requested by Lyndon B. Johnson to expand her educational work overseas and bring her teaching style and knowledge to an international audience. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, like, hand-selected to do what she was doing, but do it for an international group. Yeah. I'm surprised the president, like, cared. <laughs> That's actually I mean, maybe really we cared about education me. back then. I don't know. I don't know why that's so shocking to me that... They would be, like, involved in education. I mean, I guess I'm just too used to, like, education being on the back burner. You don't think Trump or Betsy DeVos would um, (laughs) be like, we really need to expand this botanical knowledge Uh, internationally. Stupid. Such a stupid man. (laughs) I can't even (laughs) think about him. Let's not. Let's move on. Let's think about 
Mary Taylor. Marie Taylor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, um, so on December 29th, 1990, Mary Taylor, Marie Taylor, um, <laughs> you died. You keep calling her Mary. <laughs> I know. I don't know why. So Marie Taylor uh, died okay. on December 28th, 1990 at Walter Reed Army oh. Medical Center in Washington, D.C., and oh, wow. her, yeah, how old would she be then? 11, I think she was 89. So good, oh, wow. good long okay. life. Was her, her husband still in the military? Is that? I mean, I'm why? sure he was retired. I don't know when he died. If he died before her or after her. Yeah, I guess I'm just surprised she was at the army hospital. Uh, well, I mean, she, yeah, she was at the, I mean, I'm sure she's considered maybe a veteran and he, her husband was definitely considered a veteran. So I think veteran benefits, even if they're, you know, are probably retired. I don't think they let, you know, 80 year olds be active military unless you're, um, (laughs) Grace Hopper. Yeah. Unless you're Grace Hopper. I don't think you're you're allowed to be on active duty into your 80s. Oh, right, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so she died in 1990. And according to her friend and call, uh, her colleague and friend and civil rights activist, Margaret Strickland Collins. <gasps> oh, my gosh. I know. They were good friends. <laughs> Our t- That's the so cool. Lady, yeah. yeah. So uh, Margaret Strickland Collins called Marie Taylor quote, a powerhouse who worked tirelessly to improve teaching teacher training in the sciences. Aww. Wow, and that's then, really cool. They knew each other. I know. We don't get a lot of crossovers. No, we don't get too many like crossovers. A lot of Did she go to Howard? Like, I'm trying to think where um, um, Margaret she Collins... West Virginia University. I'm trying to remember if I feel like she taught at Howard for some time. Hold on. Let me see. It's always hard to remember. I know. The specifics. Yeah. she. Okay. Wait. Yeah. I think she was at Howard as a teacher. Her husband was went to Howard Medical School. Uh, she was working at Howard f- as an assistant professor. Okay. But yeah, she so maybe left they were- it because it didn't treat its women and men faculty members equally. Oh. Interesting. I, I wonder if they, she- they were probably there at the same time then, maybe. Yeah. I think that she might have gone back to Howard eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever. It's not not about Margaret Collins, but no, it's that's not. cool. That they uh, they must have overlapped there. Yeah, they must have overlapped there and then become friends at least. Yeah. And then, so after her death, the auditorium in the Ernest Just Hall um, was named in her honor. So it's the oh. Marie Taylor um, Hall. Or Marie That's Taylor so Auditorium. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is the story of Marie Taylor. 
Wow. Marie Clark Taylor. Marie yeah. Clark Taylor. Um, maybe her maiden name was Clark. Could be, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's... <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That's not really, like, a normal, like, middle name. No, it's not a normal... It does make more sense as a maiden name. What if she was, um... A relative of Mamie Phipps Clark. Oh, it all like her husband. <laughs> all comes that would together. be too much. It's probably yeah. That would be like name. yeah. I think it's just a common last name. Anyway, yeah, it's really um, and it's really hard because of that to like look up anything. Either like yeah. Mary Taylor, Marie Taylor is like really hard to look uh, up, and yeah. then Marie Clark is also like very generic. yeah. No offense. Um, Marie. <laughs> Your name's great, well, but it's hard to find information about you. I wish we knew more about her research, but I'm it was that's really neat that she was able to kind of change biology education through yeah. <laughs> through these workshops. I mean, it really does make a difference seeing like seeing a lot of biological processes is mm-hmm. kind of the best way to learn about many of them. <laughs> Absolutely. And actually training, having scientists train teachers of like, here's mm-hmm. how we do various things. Here has how we use a yeah. light microscope to look at X, Y, and Z. Right. It's like a great, like there's um a really cool yeah. thing out at uh, the UGA Marine Institute where they, I think it's like once a year, I think it's a new program, but they have high school, like various teachers come out and they help the researchers with their projects for a week and like get a sense of how science is going on out there so that they can go back to their classrooms and have actually like gone out in the field with scientists and having a little more credibility and also be able to understand how scientists like apply their these various like topics um Mm -hmm. and just bring real science and real scientists closer to the students that's just i think really important for education yeah i think so too Mm -hmm. well that's great yeah so that's marie clark taylor awesome all right, so this is our uh, this is our women who work section where we give shout outs to badass ladies making history today, Woo-woo. and yeah. So my shout out today goes to a group of scientists at NYU, New York University in New York, New York. <laughs> Anyone who doesn't know what NYU is. Um, including Marissa Carrasco, Stephanie uh, Bade, Caroline Myers, and Shlomit Yuval Greenberg, who found a connection between eye movements and the sense of touch. Ooh. <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah, so basically with their new study, this group of women discovered that there's uh, some sort of cognitive connection between our visual sense and our tactile sense, essentially. And so how did they do this? First, what they did was they put a device on participants' fingers, 
that would vibrate fast or slow. Okay. So like, okay. yeah. And then they would ask participants to distinguish between the two types of vibrations. And while doing this, they tracked the t- tiny eye movements that are called micro saccades, which occur when you're trying to focus on something. So like, if you are trying to focus on one thing, your eyes will actually like move back and forth in a way that you can't perceive, but you know, so a machine can perceive potentially. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And which is kind of crazy to think about. But I wonder if it's because of like we have two eyes. Like I don't know how to you know? And so I don't know. I'm trying to focus on things now to see if I can like perceive it, but it's hard. Okay. So they would tell participants to focus on a spot and then they would tell participants they would use a cue to tell participants that the vibration was going to happen. So the finger device would kind of tap the participant and then some amount of time later, the vibration would actually happen. And so for some people, the time between that cue and the vibration was consistent. So they could accurately predict that the vibration was going to happen, presumably, right? Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for other people, the time between the cue and the vibration was not consistent. So it would like change. And so the cue wasn't really accurate at all about like warning them a vibration was going to, yeah. (laughs) So in the group where they could accurately predict when the vibration was going to occur, the micro saccade rates, which is the tiny eye movements, were decreased right before the vibration. And they were better at distinguishing between the fast and slow vibrations. Hmm. So what this means is like, when they knew the vibration was coming, it's almost like they would shift their cognition to focus on the vibration mm-hmm. rather than on focusing on a spot. Okay. Right? So there's less tiny eye movements from trying to focus on the spot and almost more focus on whether a vibration was occurring. Mm-hmm. Since they were better at distinguishing between the fast and slow vibrations. Gotcha. Um, and so Carrasco says they essentially, the senior author, she says that they essentially discovered that tiny eye movements can hinder our ability to discriminate between different tactile stimuli. And that mm-hmm. it may be because they're controlled. Uh, This tactile sense and our visual sense could be controlled by common brain areas, as well as common neural and cognitive resources. That's interesting. I know, like, isn't it a thing that often people who are blind have much better, like, tactile senses and other sense, or, like, other senses? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how much of this feeds into that. Yeah, definitely. I think, but that's, yeah, that's the kind of thing where it's almost like we just have a limited capacity for information. I know I and do. And so, yeah, me too. <laughs> and so, um, 
or like at least like conscious information that mm-hmm. we can like process or even unconscious subconscious but um but yeah so like something about having this accurate cue that can tell you when to focus on the vibration yeah like you just shift your your cognition to to focus on something i don't know yeah that's cool yeah that's interesting that like I mean, we we can't. We're not jacks of all trades. We can't do everything all at once. <laughs> I mean, you can be a jacks of jack of all trades, master of none. Yes, that's right? true. It's true. So that's where you, if you're a little bit good at everything, you can't be great at one thing. Mm-hmm. At least not all at the same time. Yeah, definitely. Um. But I thought it was weird that we just have these tiny eye movements that you can measure. And I keep trying to focus on things and see if <laughs> my eyes move. <laughs> I'm doing it right now. I'm like, my eyes are wide. I'm trying to focus on my laundry uh, You probably my look laundry insane. rack. <laughs> I do. I actually probably do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if I do it, it's like I feel like I can feel one eye and then the other. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. It's probably also t- hard for you to feel your... Right. If I'm just focusing on this spot, I'm not thinking at all about what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Which I think is where that... It's just like kind of a really interesting experience that they... Or like, oh, let's vary these cues to kind of shift people's focus. And then, anyway, that was cool. Yeah, no, I like, I I find, like, creative experimental designs are, like, yeah. my, my jam. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's, like, so, so interesting. How to, like, isolate certain factors that you're in- actually interested in. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Cool. I will stare at things with... New Stare abandoned. at things and pinch yourself. <laughs> if I focus on pinching myself, I'm not as good at focusing far on a spot. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so instead of don't try this at home, I'm going to say do try this at home. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> um, okay, cool. I think that's our, our pod for the week. Yeah. That's our app. Um, thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, if you like this episode or our podcast in general, please rate, review, subscribe, share, let people know so that people can learn about more of these mm-hmm. awesome ladies, uh, helps us out, get more traction. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I hope everybody's staying safe and hiding mm-hmm. if they are able. Um, wear a mask. Wear your freaking mask. <laughs> And I want to thank Caitlin Friesen and Artichoke for our awesome art and theme music. And everyone can go stimulate, stimulate yourself. yourself. Yeah. What's up? Okay. Can I bring that back? No. <laughs> <laughs> that would be like 2020 is fucked enough that like if we also have to deal with what's up. We don't need what's up. <laughs> All right, bye. Bye.